Welcome to Soundboard, the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. I'm your producer and host, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at Steinway & Sons and for the online music magazine, listenmusicculture.com. In Soundboard's previous episode, we heard from jazz saxophonist composer Tim Byrne about finding your groove in improvisation. Continuing on this theme, my guest today is pianist-composer and Steinway artist Moira Lobianco, whose album Imago for the Steinway & Sons label explores the imaginative possibilities of improvisation across musical genres and styles. I spoke to her from Steinway Hall in New York City. Moira, you're a classical pianist who places a lot of value in improvisation. Yes. Can you tell me about how your fascination with improvisation came about? So, as all uh, classical pianists, I attended the conservatory in Italy, which is actually 10 years long. So it was a beautiful journey of 10 years, uh, since when I was 9 until when I was 19. And I grew up playing this fantastic repertoire, and I was very in love with the repertoire. But then I went to university and started studying deeply Western classical music. So um, little by little, it came out, all these improvisational aspects that nobody told me while I was at the conservatory. Uh, so I discovered that starting from the Gregorian chants, uh, we have the Vox Organalis that was improvised that all the ornamentations in Gregorian chants, they were improvised. And I discovered that all the musical forms that we play, like the preludes, the fantasies, they were improvised. I also discovered that um, composers like Mozart or Haydn, they will even do these dice games. And uh, so they will have a lot of fun with improvisation. We are talking about Mozart and Haydn. So, you know... Um, so we're going beyond the Baroque. I, it's yeah. from much before and it And also after. after. And, and that's the thing, isn't it? When we, when we think of classical improvisation, we already put it in this niche of Bach improvising at the keyboard. But as you say, there's much more to that oh, yeah. story. So please continue. So uh, the dice game, it's very interesting, for instance, because through the chance, so the combination of numbers, each number will refer to a, a musical fragment, and the combination of those, they will uh, be the new comp composition um, that will be improvised there on the spot. Uh, but if we think also in the 1600, um, the major preludes by Couperin, um, so he was approaching improvisation how? Giving the notes, the exact notes to the performer, but then the articulation, the phrasing, the length, the dynamics, it was all up to the performer. Um, that is another way to approach improvisation. And then, uh, of course, if we think about Bach, but that everybody knows it. But also if we think, for instance, uh, Beethoven, he was famous for doing duels in improvisation. So the whole idea is really to understand that all these composers, even though we have as a reference the beautiful work that they did written down, it doesn't mean that they will do only that. And, and in a lot of cases, that may have just been a written improvisation. Exactly. I mean, Chopin, come on. It's not possible to think that Chopin will uh, play the first ballad 
the same or the nocturne the same it's it's really impossible to think that especially with all the ornamentation oh yeah no it's it's yeah. it's, it's clear i mean it's clear in the writing but it's also true that i think this misconception came because we don't have recordings so it's like now you know we listen to a jazz solo and somebody transcribes it and we don't have any recording of that so we think that that is written down when it's not so we also have to consider uh, the instrument that we had historically to record the, the, the music. It was only paper, because this is what it was. Uh, but then if we want to keep exploring, of course, briefly, if we think the cadenza, of course, it was improvised. Even uh, um, the contemporary composers, there is this beautiful movement called aleatoric music that actually comes from alea, that is... Um, it's the Latin word for chance, and it's actually re- referred to the dice games. Mm-hmm. So there is always connection between um, the classical uh, composers, not only in terms of style and in terms of composition, but also in terms of improvisation. And we would see John Cage try to bring that back. Of course, John practice. Cage with uh, his graphic scores, but then we also have the open forms, so Zyklus by Sokhausen, that is a percussion piece, it's an open form piece. So you can recombine the sections uh, however you want. And this is a way to improvise as well. Or there are other composers like Cowell that they leave some room of improvisation, for instance, asking to the performers, okay, play this a libitum while some other, it's a, you know, the composition keep going. It's not uh, right to think improvisation only as something that is not related to the classical tradition. And I think it's not good for us, as uh, young classically trained pianists, to think that not improvising is okay, because it's not. All the composers that we love, that uh, we studied, that we grew up with, they were fantastic improvisers. Or if they were not fantastic improvisers, they will be aware of the importance of improvisation. And the thing, too, I think, especially from a classical perspective, is that if you can improvise fluently in a classical idiom, then you're really showing an understanding of chords and structure. Bravo, because this is another thing. Like, you know, that's why I created my workshop series, because I have to say the truth. Like, when I was 19, I would be able to play anything, but I didn't understand what I was playing. You were just regurgitating it uh, off the the sheet music. Yes, and this is true. And I say that. But then when I was 19, I just found, okay, this is not right. You know, it's not right. I really need to understand what I'm playing, but not understanding in terms, okay, this is the structure, blah, blah, blah. No, really, what's this voicing? What's the tension that he's using on this dominant chord? What's the chord progression? Because otherwise, I am just a machine that is repeating nicely. Everything is written down, how it's notated, but I have no idea what I'm saying. And uh, so I started really uh, challenge myself because it's a challenge. If you grow up as a reader, then it's very hard to catch up mm-hmm. uh, with the ear mm-hmm. because you have, a visual, you have a visual approach to the music. But I did. I think it was very important for me to do. And little by little, you know, I start applying fantastic exercises, like I was mentioning before, like now, for instance, I am uh, transposing back inventions, two voices, of course, because otherwise it's great. <laughs> 
Because I want to transpose. Mm-hmm. So why I have to transpose something that is not classical? You know, right. let's let's do this nice exercise. And then you really classical. own those those uh, compositions. Those compositions because it doesn't become muscle memory. You're you're actually you know, knowing those notes yeah. uh, intimately. And when you analyze, when you start to analyze all the classical music, you understand the beauty that will never, never expire. Because, for instance, Bach was using a lot uh, in the dominant chords, the flat nine, that will resolve mm-hmm. all the fifth or the chord after. And this is bebop. Mm-hmm. I tell to my students all sure. the time, if you want to study bebop, because, you know, now we all want to study jazz for some reason, because maybe it's a misconception that if I want to improvise, I have to study jazz. Mm-hmm. But I always You're saying you have reference. to go back much further. I'm thinking you mentioned Couperin before and some pieces by him where it's where it's just a four chord progression and he mm-hmm. repeats it 50 times each with such invention and such variation. Oh yeah. I mean even uh you know this D major prelude that he recorded in the album so beautiful. Like and this just stays on 1 4 5 1 actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know maybe he introduces some uh, secondary dominant here and there but really it's very diatonic basically but it's so beautiful because the phrasing that he does is um, always changing and always um, experiment n- new way to, to play the same notes.
So let's let's speak to some more of the repertoire on your album. You do um, you do something with the work of Satie as well. Yes. Maybe you could tell us a bit about that. Yes. So uh, Satie, it's a composer that I love very much. Be- maybe because um, he wasn't very recognized, mm. <laughs> and he was absolutely crazy. I don't know if you know, but he had you know his own church for a while. He was very mystical. When he died, his uh, friends they open. Uh, one room in his apartment and they found all these umbrellas there. He was very interesting. It was guy. a bit of a Scriabin path for him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> he was very interesting guy. But what I love about Sadi is because, especially in the new science, he's very much influenced by Arabic makam. So we need to contextualize this. Uh, there was a universal exhibition in Paris, right? So all these composers, because uh, France was, you know, colonizing um, the Arabic world, so they will do this uh, universal exhibition to show, you know, how big France was, and they will bring also the musicians from there. So these composers, like Satie, like Debussy, like Ravel, you know, all the French, they will listen uh, to the Eastern uh, music, and they start using in their composition. So Nyusien, we have specifically some makam that he uses all the time, time that are Nakris, that are Nawatar. Um, and it's beautiful because, um, you know. Tell us what makam are in case. So the makam, it's uh, the model system of which music, uh, Arabic music is founded. Uh, so, of course, I can play at the piano, I will say, five makams out of because are based on microtonality. And as a pianist, unfortunately, I can't. Yeah, you're stuck. You're stuck with... Uh, stuck. Yeah. So I try to do you know, <laughs> as much as I can just to get a little taste out of it. Uh, so in the album, I recorded a reimagination of Nusier number four.
And these are major preludes, actually, that are the three preludes uh, for a flask. So it's it's um, are three preludes that uh, Satie wrote for a dog. Mm-hmm. The first one it's very fast. The second one it's like a lullaby, and the third one is again fast. So I played the original version, but then I applied three technique of uh, improvisation. The first one is the paraphrase. Mm-hmm. So keeping the material that you have. So don't change even one note. But uh, you can change, you know, the rhythm. You can change the phrasing. You can change the articulation. You can change the speed. So we can approach improvisation exactly playing the, the notes that are there on the score. Then there is the second one that is the creation of original melodies. So based on what you have on the score, you develop it further a little bit here and there according to your taste. And, in the, and then there is the third one that is actually the free form, uh, and I apply to the third uh, uh, prelude. So basically, uh, recombine in a free way the material that you have there. And it was a lot of fun, actually. It's a very interesting concept. I'm thinking of theater when you tell me this, because if you're an actor, the script is just a tool for your performance. It's not... A kind of action. Yeah, it's not so set in stone the way often classical music scores are treated. So it sounds to me like you take this notation that's a tool and then you explore on your stage, which is the piano. Yeah, because that's the point. You know, sometimes when when I talk to maybe older classical professors, teachers, whatever, they think it's disrespectful. And they really want to, I will never stress enough that it's actually very respectful to my tradition because I play first the version that is written on the score. I was classically trained. You're not taking a shortcut. You know? No, yeah. I, I always do what's written. But then, let's be creative. You know, like, we can't think as Bach was thinking. I can study Bach, but then I can also take some elements here and there mm-hmm. so that I can bring to my own story. Because, you know, most of these composers, they were performers, but they were composers. I am a composer. Like, I play the piano as a main instrument, but I also write for orchestra because I think as a composer. So improvisation, if you're a composer, it's like water. You can't think that you approach improvisation. Okay, let me write today a sonata form. So what's the rule for this? No, even try out on your instrument. You need to improvise. And also on the Imago album, you've taken more contemporary songs as well, right? Yes, of course, because that's the fun. So how to use uh, classical skills Mm -hmm. uh, to a totally different world. I teach at Berklee College of Music, and I'm teaching this concept to the students. So, of course, uh, you know, you have students that are more advanced in a way and others that are more shy. They think they cannot do it. So I decide, okay, let me have some consistency between what I teach and what I do as a performer. Let me just record an album so I can show them that they can do it, you know. 
And so I took some of the repertoire that it's more close to them. So Toxic by Britney Spears and um, Come As You Are by Nirvana.
also I did a Dada version of Lady Gaga Bad Romance. Mm-hmm. So and what's it? What's it? What's the Dada version in this case? What, what does that mean? Yeah, because really, like you can barely recognize the team. Okay. Um, but basically, you know, um, I develop actually it's quartal uh, voicings, uh, but the texture changes all the time, and uh, I harmonize basically um, the melody of the of the of the piece. Uh, it's it's very it was a fun approach because it's like a character. Because I love Lady Gaga. I think she's a very smart artist. And um, so I know that she has a lot of fun, you know, the way she dresses, her persona, right? So I wanted to treasure that musically. Of course, heavily influenced by classical. You've told me that you think a, a classical foundation is beneficial not only for classical musicians, but for everyone. Oh, yeah. what, what is it that that gives a performer? Not only as a performer, as a ranger, as a composer, as a human being. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it gives uh, everything. First of all, if you practice classical, being aware of what's going on on the score, you learn a lot of harmony, you learn a lot of voicings, you learn a lot of piano solo technique, you learn a lot of musical forms, you learn a lot of literature. If you want to write, if you want to play, if you want to arrange, we need to have foundation on something. And I think classical, even if you are a songwriter, it's much better. Why? Because, for instance, I'm going to write this arrangement for string quartet. And I hear plenty of string quartet, just like, you know, bad. It's long notes, but it's cool because it's a string quartet. And I'm trying to say, guys, there is something called counterpoint that if you apply to your same tune you know you don't have to change that but the movement of the voices the inner voices you know going somewhere in the right way it gives you so much more um taste to the same arrangement Mm -hmm. and movement and space Yeah. yeah you know it's just the texture it's it's richer so you don't just guess how to move the voice you know how to do it so even if we are, you know, doing a pop song, it's very important. Of course, as a performer, you know, um, the taste, the touch, the variety of the touch that you can get, the variety of technique that you can get. If you practice classical, it's it's wider than if you don't, because when you play Bach, you need to play in a certain way, so you will develop certain skills. When you play Chopin, you will develop other things. When you play Rachmaninoff, if you have a big enough big hand, or if you don't have, you develop something else. Yeah. So it's not only in terms of music by itself, but also in terms of technical skills. And that's an interesting point that you bring up. Certain classical music, especially at the very advanced levels, it may not be playable per se. Yeah. So you have to make decisions Yeah. about what are you going to get and what are you going to leave behind. And yeah. that in itself is a, is a form of improvisation. Of course. We don't have to forget that if we are yes for improvisation, even interpretation, it's a form of improvisation by itself. So it's really, it's up to us if we are open or not open to this idea. Because sometimes, you know, if you stay there and say, no, you know, there is the Urtex version that says mezzo forte, but then there is the, the other one that says mezzo piano, mm-hmm. and, and you have a crisis, it's too much. Like, you know, like, okay, how do you feel that? Maybe Monday, 
I'm very lazy and I'm going to feel it mezzo piano and Tuesday I'm going to feel it mezzo forte. You know, don't don't be obsessed by, you know, what was... With correctness. Yeah, yeah. also because uh, if we think about classical repertoire, it was played on other instruments. We should remember that. The right. Stenwis period wasn't there, right? Right. So the piano wasn't there. I, no, but this is why I was <laughs> yeah. I was saying, right? Yeah. So if we start being so meticulous about this and there and, and really get frustrated about, okay, so what's the point? We are playing on another instrument. Mm-hmm. So this conversation well, we can just remember that exist. there wasn't a lot of give and take on a harpsichord. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So you know, we really need to adjust all the time because the music is the product of the historical moment. So Bach was the product of that moment. The role of the musician in the society changes. The society by itself changes. So we can't live as a classical musician only related to the repertoire. I got so many other influences. Even though my first love and my biggest love is still Bach, but I can't ignore all the other traditions mm-hmm. that I was exposed you to. You can't pretend Nirvana didn't happen, that Lady Gaga isn't selling what yeah. she's selling. And then yeah. also this is another um, another uh, important point. Why, as a classical musician, we have to consider this like second-class music? Mm-hmm. When it's not. Yeah. Like, consider it as a scientist. There is no, you know, um, um, op- opinion based on this is better, this is wrong. No, this is something that is existing because the society is bringing you there. You like it or not. So let's try to approach it in a smart way and let's try to take out of it the best you can. Yeah. I think that's it. I think that's it. Yep. (laughs) Sorry, man, I get passionate.
You've been listening to Soundboard, the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. We heard pianist, composer, and Steinway artist Moira Lobianco perform her take on Couperin's Prelude in D Major. We then heard Reimagination of Nocien No. 4 after Satie, Toxic slash Come As You Are, and Lady Gaga Dada, A Bad Romance, all from Moira Lobianco's album Imago on the Steinway & Sons label. To learn more, visit steinway.com slash label. Our intro and outro music is Philip Glass's Mad Rush, performed on a Steinway Model M by me, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at listenmusicculture.com. Questions for the podcast can be sent to info at steinway.com with the subject heading Soundboard. Thank you for listening.